Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'll be here reviewing the next hour with some of the highlights from Monaco Radio this week. We speak to Alexander Senkevich, mayor of Mykolaiv in Ukraine, about how his city hopes to rebuild after the war. As soon as this war happens, we need to prepare all the plans, all the bureaucracy procedures to start a rebuild and renovate Ukraine. Plus, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. I would sit in this 9 by 11 basement room and I would just write. And then once a week I would go down to The New Yorker offices and slip what I'd written under the door, truly. And then it would come back to me with a rejection sleep the following week. And this went on for six years, essentially, until finally they bought one of these things. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We head to Australia for our first item here on The Curator. Australia's Defence Review has identified an urgent need for the country to bolster its military personnel and weaponry, despite being in peacetime. Andrew Muller discusses whether this conclusion is paranoid or has merit. A squint at a map could very easily lead one to conclude that protecting Australia from predation is no great challenge. Australia is a vast remote island only really approachable from the north where there are formidable natural defences in the shape of fathomless deserts and impenetrable rainforests. Invading would be like trying to subdue Afghanistan and Vietnam at the same time, only with more spiders. Fear of invasion has nevertheless been a recurrent motif of Australia's modern history. A nervous sublimation, possibly, of the fact that Australia's modern history began with invasion by the United Kingdom in 1788. During the 19th century, fears of invasion by Russia, Germany, France or pretty much whoever were occasionally thought sufficient to warrant the hasty erection of fortifications. During the 20th century, specifically during World War II, Japan actually had a pop, bombing Broome, Darwin and other northern conurbations from the air and attacking Sydney and Newcastle with midget submarines. The Japanese know these waters well. In peacetime their ships could come and go as they pleased. Many of them were manned by officers who we now know were officers of their fighting navy, sent for espionage. It's infuriating to think how they were allowed to come as friends and do their work as enemies. Perhaps some of those boys were among the crews of the two-man submarines which did the job. But Japan's land forces never got closer than Papua New Guinea. At the risk of undermining the theme thus established, Australia's new Defence Strategic Review, released this week, is pretty relaxed about any prospect of marauders from abroad sending armoured divisions thundering down the Stuart Highway from Darwin to Adelaide or their landing craft storming Bondi and Narrabeen. But the review, written by former Defence Minister Stephen Smith and former Australian Defence Force Chief, Air Chief Marshal Sir Angus Houston, is bracingly clear that there are other dangers. The threat, it says, of the use of military force or coercion against Australia does not require invasion. The review is also unabashed about naming the threat, noting that China's military build-up is, quote, the largest and most ambitious by any country since the end of World War II, unquote, 
and that China's throwing around of its considerable weight in the South China Sea, quote, threatens the global rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific in a way that adversely affects Australia's national interests, unquote. None of which descends from a clear blue sky. Australia's relationship with China has become increasingly fractious in recent years, descending from a reasonably harmonious peak during the Prime Ministership of Chinese-speaking Sinophile Kevin Rudd around 2007 to 2010. While we're up this way, episode 439 of The Foreign Desk is an extended conversation with Rudd about how Australia and its allies can avoid conflict with China. And you can listen to that just as soon as you're done listening to this. And Australia has been worried about China almost as long as Australia has been Australia. The Chinese who began arriving in Australia in noticeable numbers during the gold rushes of the middle of the 19th century were greeted with suspicion if they were lucky. There were full-scale anti-Chinese pogroms on the gold fields of the Buckland Valley in Victoria in 1857 and at Lamming Flat in New South Wales in 1861. Australian newspapers and current affairs periodicals indulged in regular China baiting. Fear of China was in part a catalyst for the federation of the original Australian colonies into a commonwealth in 1901. Do you think that other people from other countries should be allowed to live in Australia? I don't really think so because there are too many people from other countries and soon one country from another country will probably invade us. The white Australia immigration policies, not fully phased out until 1973, were boldly targeted at Chinese people, and Australia was a somewhat hesitant recogniser of the People's Republic of China, waiting more than a year after the United Nations recognised it in 1971. According to an Australia Institute poll as recently as 2021, fully 42% of Australians profess fear of Chinese invasion. To put that in perspective, the same poll only found 51% expressing the same concern in actual Taiwan. Australians do respond to their media, and that the more the media talk up a problem, the more Australians respond to it. And the second reason is that the Taiwanese people actually understand China and they have exposure to the 3,000 years of China's social, political and economic development. However, while Australia's past worries about China may have been paranoid, this does not mean that Australia's current caution is not prudent. Things, as the review notes, have changed. The United States is no longer militarily dominant in the Indo-Pacific and as the election of Donald Trump demonstrated, could conceivably retreat into sullen isolation. I am going to issue our notification of intent to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a potential disaster for our country. So Australia, as the review sees it, needs to be able to hit harder and further and independently. We have arrived, it warns, at the Missile Age, in response to which Australia must be able to project force hundreds of kilometres from its own shores and must be able to do so with weapons it can build itself. Part of the not inconsiderable cost of this new homegrown missile capacity will be raised by dramatically scaling back planned purchases of new infantry fighting vehicles and self-propelled howitzers. The message is not difficult to decipher. Australia wants to keep adversaries at a distance.
It is difficult to believe that it is a coincidence that this review has been dropped the same week that Australia and New Zealand observe Anzac Day, which commemorates with due patriotic melancholy the sacrifices made by the militaries of both countries. And while we're plugging other Monocle Radio stuff, you can learn more about Anzac Day from the On This Day feature on the Monocle Daily of April 25th. Australia needs people to rally round the flag literally as well as spiritually. Amid concerns about lagging troop numbers, the Australian Defence Force has embarked upon its biggest ever peacetime recruitment drive. While it must of course be primarily hoped that this does have the effect of swelling the ADF's ranks to the desired strength, we can also perhaps wistfully anticipate advertising which will rise to the heights laconically commanded by this early 1980s spot for the Royal Australian Navy. You'll be wet, you'll be homesick and frightened, but the pride of the will be you. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And now we have a report from Austria from our correspondent Monaco's Alexei Korolev. He's talking about the close down of one of the oldest daily newspapers in the world, the 320-year-old Wiener Zeitung, which is owned by the Austrian state and is financed through the government's official gazette, which comes as an insert in every issue. Let's hear his report. It's the oldest newspaper in the world, yes, but you have to finance it. And you cannot finance it with a story. It's the oldest newspaper. That's not money. I'm sorry. Green Party MP Eva Blimlinger is one of the architects of the new legislation. And for her, the issue is purely economic. The Wiener Zeitung's Gazette, the Amtsblatt, is a dead weight, and it has to go. The main problem was that uh, the Wiener Zeitung was financed by the Amtsblatt. Mm. About 18 millions of uh, euro. And it is totally clear that print daily newspapers don't have a future. Yeah? You can see it in, in the whole world. So the question was what to do. So we uh, decided to make it in an online media, but also with print, not daily, but the Wiener Zeitungsgesenberg could make it weekly or also, I don't know, monthly, whatever. It's a decision of the Wiener Zeitung. Not everybody agrees. In Vienna, there have been several demonstrations, and at the Wiener Zeitung itself, the mood is one of protest and defiance. This uh, company is owned by the government, right? Thomas Seifert is deputy editor-in-chief. But what also what irks me is that they, uh, why didn't even try to sell it if they, if they think, okay, it's not, not going to have a future. And of course, we know what the newspaper industry is going through a, a tough time. But still, why is The Guardian still publishing in print? Why is the Neue Zürcher still publishing in print? Why is the Süddeutsche Zeitung still publishing in print? Frankfurt Allgemeine, the Financial Times, the New York Times, it could go on and on and on. Paper is still there, and I think there is some intrinsic value in it. It's a, it's a shame that this newspaper with this long tradition, uh, the oldest newspaper still in print, uh, will cease to exist as a printed uh, edition. But there's a further complication. Our fear is, as uh, the, the team here, I'm the deputy editor-in-chief, and our fear is that uh, also with the printed edition vanishing, 
this whole, uh, let's say, culture of this editorial ethics will also uh, vanish because until today we don't know whether this uh, online product, which actually if you ask me what it will be, I cannot tell you. The changes to the Wiener Zeitung are part of a wider shake-up of Austria's media policy and its other elements have come in for criticism too. Daniela Kraus is president of the country's oldest press club, Concordia. There is a new a construction which includes a so-called media hub and this media hub will be responsible for the training of journalists. Now there are two problems with this. The first problem is that this media hub will get lots and lots of money, 6 million euro per year, which is much more than every private uh, journalism training institution in this country has available. And the second problem is this new training institution will be under the direction of the chancellery. So they can really dominate and regulate the market. And then uh, journalists who do their training there, they get paid, which they don't get in any other training institutions. So of course, young people will have a very high incentive to attend this training institution. So I think we really have a, a high potential of very strong influence into the profession, not only in the market, but also into the profession and how people approach the, the, the job and how they are trained. Uh, okay, this uh, was uh, this is the first edition uh, of the Wiener Zeitung at that time. Uh, it was uh, called Wienerisches Diarium, right? This is from uh, 1703. It was Wednesday, the 8th of August wow. in 1703. And then let's let's move forward a little bit into more recent uh, recent time. It's a reprint of Monday, the 29th of June, 1914. Mm -hmm. So we, we jumped a few centuries, no problem. Back at the Wiener Zeitung's office, Deputy Editor-in-Chief Thomas Seifert goes through the paper's back issues. There's one for every major event in Austrian and world history over the past three centuries, including the killing of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914 and the end of the Second World War. So this is uh, how this newspaper is basically part of uh, Austrian history. And of course, since uh, the founding until today, uh, it's about current events. This is what a newspaper does. And uh, it's the oldest newspaper that is still in print and uh, they're closing it down, uh, the print edition. And uh, this is not good news, mm -hmm. I think. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. You are listening to the curator of Monocle Radio, still on the world of media. This time a highlight from The Stack, the show I host every week, where I speak to editors, designers and publishers as well. This time I spoke to the writer for The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik. The truth is, is that when I arrived in New York, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to write a musical comedy and I wanted to write for The New Yorker. I had written the college show which I, about the life of Vladimir Tatlin, a Russian instructivist architect. I thought well, I was two minutes from Broadway, and it turned out not to be that way. But the other thing I wanted to do was write for The New Yorker, and I would sit, I describe this in my book, At the Stranger's Gate, I would sit in this 9 by 11 basement room that my wife and I had rented, and I would just write. And then once a week, I would go down to the New Yorker offices, in those days on West 43rd Street, and slip what I'd written under the door, truly. And then it would come back to me with a rejection sleep the following week. And this went on for six years, essentially, until finally, in May of 1986, they bought one of these things, an odd essay called Quattrocento Baseball. 
And then I started writing for them. They bought something else. Then they hired me as a as an editor, writer, slash writer originally. And then I've been there ever since. And it's fascinating because for me, I don't, the New Yorker remains quite... There's, there's a certain mystique about it. And, and people talk about the golden age of magazines, whatever. But I still think the New Yorker still have that element to itself, don't you think? I, you know, look, I, I hope so, obviously, mm. right? That's part of the, the, to be brutal, is part of what we trade in, right? But it's also a very hard thing to keep up. The thing I think people sometimes don't get about the New Yorker is that we are a magazine primarily of reporting and criticism. We're not a magazine of social policy. The Atlantic, which is a wonderful magazine, will run a piece about what should we do about crime in the streets or something. But we don't do that, really. Now, we'll deal with that kind of material, but we deal with it through criticism. I'll get 18 books on the crime decline in America or incarceration in America and write about them. Or we'll do it through reporting. I'll go to, not just me, I'm using me as the guinea pig mm. I'll go to, um, if I'm, uh, you know, the crisis of incarceration, spend a year with uh, Sam Rivera, a great man who's out of prison, who's helping other men through it. So we're a magazine of criticism and reporting, which is, and gives us a certain kind of sinew, if you know what I mean. That's what we do. And from the very first issue to, I hope now, we're a magazine of humor. The cartoons in The New Yorker are not secondary or cosmetic. They're the, the beating heart of the magazine. So criticism, reporting, and humor are where we live and where we have to continue to live. And although it's called The New Yorker, of course, I feel that it's quite international in its spirit as well. I mean, even you can tell us about your experience because you've, you've been to Paris uh, yes. for a few years as well. Well, traditionally, The New Yorker, always, or from sort of from the 1930s on, always had a presence abroad. Janet Flanner, great writer, preceded me in Paris. A.J. Liebling, an even better writer, followed her or, or was parallel with her. So we've always been a magazine of overseas reporting of that kind. David Remnick, the current editor of the magazine, who made his reputation as a reporter in, uh, in Moscow during the Gorbachev years, has a particular passion for that and, and wants the magazine always to be on top of whether it's Iraq or Georgia or, or those things. And he greatly values those incredibly intrepid reporters who will go to a scene of violence and danger and come back with a story as he has done himself. He doesn't call on me to do that too often. I, I'm usually counted on to go to Paris or London to report on the changing scene there. But it's very much part of the, the magazine's mandate as he understands it. How was the experience in Paris? Was that something that you kind of fought for it or you've been asked actually to spend a few years Tina in Paris? Brown, who was the editor of mm -hmm. the magazine then and mm -hmm. who both revolutionized the magazine, but in most important respects, restored it to orthodoxy and mm -hmm. re recuperated it in many ways, said to me, I've always thought you would do wonderfully writing from abroad. I would have been the art critic of the magazine for a while. And she could sense I was dissatisfied with it. I had, I had not larger, but other ambitions. And I said, absolutely, Tina, I would love to go to Paris and write from there. And to her great credit, she said, oh, absolutely, go to, let's go to Paris. Go to Paris. Just go, 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 and write from there, which was sort of audacious of her because in the 90s, the world, including Tina, didn't think of Paris as being a cockpit of modern experience, thought of it much more as a, as a backwater, uh, mm. actually more like, you know, like the little Gaulish town in the Asterix comics, you know, <laughs> the whole world has been conquered by America. And she thought accurately that London was a much more lively place. But that's exactly what drew me to Paris, was studying the little Gaulish village that said no to the encircling Anglo-American hegemony and, and dominant discourse. 
And Tina, which is what makes her a great editor, believed in writers, not in subjects. And he said, okay, if he wants to go there, we'll find out what's there. And it was a joyous experience for me because every writer has a moment in life when you discover your voice. And I had been, an, I think, an adept, maybe even at times, a more than adept art critic, and I'd written about other things. But I knew from the moment I started writing in Paris that I had found myself. Writing is many things, and, and I work as hard at writing as I think any writer that I know. But finally, it's that moment when you have some mix of irony and sincerity, some mix of the own personal vibration of your voice with the world you're describing. And I knew that I had arrived at it in Paris. It's that nice moment where you feel you know it's good work. Even people who hate me have to say, this is, this is unfortunately, this is good. So that was a joyous time for me and, and, and the most instructive one. I love that you mentioned that Tina believed in the writer, not necessarily subjects, because yeah. for me, that's what The New Yorker is about. And even looking at your more recent articles, I mean, you wrote about the new logo of, yeah. of New York, which nobody, <laughs> nobody liked I, it, right? But also about artificial lighting, poisoning the world, yes. you know, it's yeah, very diverse. You know, I, that's the joyful thing. I mean, I should say it's not, as some people seem to think, a sinecure. I mean, it demands endless work. I, the piece about the New York logo, I got in a text from an editor saying, have you seen this crazy logo? And I was on a plane and I said, oh my goodness, I'll let me write something. And I wrote it on the plane and sent it off. It's, you know, the one thing that I, I resent, it gets me, is that people think, oh, it's a kind of cushy, easy sinecure being a New Yorker writer, like being an Oxford Don or something. And it's just the opposite. You gain the independence, the autonomy to write about the things you feel passionately about by the industry with which you write about everything. It is a weekly magazine and it rewards industry and always has. I write six hours a day, seven days a week, books and, and shows sometimes too, but the core of it is the New Yorker. The great figures of the New Yorker, John Updike, who's my own particular pope, was as unceasingly industrious a writer as there could be. And he gave me the one piece of kind of passing on of hands, what does one call that, you know, advice that I ever got after I'd been there about a year. He came around and he said, gently said, oh, Mr. Gopnik, I'm enjoying your work very much. Very much. He said, you know, I suspect you're a yes writer like me, and I would recommend to you that you just say yes to everything because you'll waste more emotional energy worrying about what to write rather than just writing. And I took that right to heart. And now basically you say one something, you can have it. It's the way writers stay in shape. And I have to ask, I mean, out of curiosity, because I'm, I'm a big fan, I'm a reader of The New Yorker. Is it true about the fact checking for the magazine oh, that is, is particularly strict in, in a way, in a good way? Is it is it true, but it's gotten much worse oh, as, really? time, <laughs> as time has gone on. When I started, there's a, a long riff in Paris the Moon, my book about Paris, where I talk about how in France they would have theory checkers, not fact checkers. But we do have fact checkers. When I started, the fact checkers tended to be older people who had been doing it for a very long time. And they had kind of the psychic arrangement of librarians, that kind of very cautious, careful, polite type. Now, all the fact checkers are 20-something. They just graduated from Johns Hopkins with triple degrees in comp literature <laughs> and Spanish and French. They speak six languages. They know everything. And they gently try to show you just how thin an ice of pseudo-erudition you're skating on. So they joyfully catch me out on, on a million things. So yes, it's Martha. My wife knows when I'm going into my office to deal with a fact checker, I get a certain particular cast of belligerent skepticism on my face. But they save you invariably week after week from that one glaring error, which is inevitably something that you knew was right. 
that turns out to be wrong. Not something that you thought might be wrong, but something you knew was right that turns out to be wrong. So bless them. I rely on them so much that when I do a book now, I hire a fact checker just to go through it with the same uh, acuity. I think that's another valuable lesson, I have yes. to say. And Adam, you are a busy man. You spoke to my colleague Georgina about your uh, new book as well. And right. sometimes you're an actor in Hollywood films as well <laughs> with Kate Blanchett. Uh, what, what are the other plans for 2023? Maybe particularly with The New Yorker. I mean, I know probably you can't review what you're writing. You know, I, 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 you know I'm, I'm, I'm unembarrassable and completely unsecretive. You know, some writers keep things locked inside mm. and other writers talk it out. A.J. <laughs> Liebling, my hero, was like that. He, everyone said he would talk the piece and then you would see it the next week in the Mac. I love sort of being a critic at large. You know, my wonderful editor, Henry Finder, basically throws eight books at me and says, can you make something of this? And then you have to kind of turn it into mulch and growth and grow flowers from it. And I love that. It's like being a perpetual Oxford student in 1890, you know, where your tutor gives you books and you report on them. I love doing that. I want to go back to Paris, since you ask, and, and write more. But more than anything else, the simple truth is that, you know, my work took a very radically different turn six or seven years ago for the simple reason that Donald Trump and uh, an indigenous American fascism, I won't hesitate to call it that, mm -hmm. were rising. And I began to write passionately and frequently about politics and eventually produce my book, A Thousand Small Sanities. We are in the midst of a national, an unending national emergency in the United States. And writers are both artists and citizens, certainly public writers of my kind. And the citizenship part of it will be ever more strong with the election coming up. I don't think we can speak out loudly enough or often enough about the fundamental threat to liberal democracy, the possibility that liberal democracy could be assassinated in front of our eyes. And so that's my primary task, my primary expectation, and my primary duty. Oh, my God. I'll, I'll definitely be keeping an eye for your <laughs> upcoming articles. And and by the way, as a New Yorker reader, I see that there's more of it because I have, I'm have i a subscriber of the newsletter as well. Yes. And sometimes... You know, there's like articles that you can only see on the see, internet. It, it's it's a, there's a lot of content. It's a lot of content. We do a lot online now. And I will say, you know, David Remnick has proven himself to be, a, even those of us who loved him as a writer and as a friend and knew he would be a terrific editor, could not have anticipated what a terrific editor he would be. And one of the things that he's done is to make sure that there's no division between the online magazine and the print magazine. It would have been easy to make the online magazine sort of for the the youngsters, the Aravis, but he's insisted that those of us who are creaky and easily exhausted veterans be online in the online part just as much as we are in the print part. So there's no segregation between those two things, which I think makes us, makes you know that whatever you're reading is, is mint New Yorker or vintage New Yorker at least. From the Urbanist, a very interesting story. We speak to Alexander Senkevich, mayor of Mykolaiv in Ukraine. He tells us how his city hopes to rebuild after the war. What is the session that you will be attending today? The session uh, is about uh, the renovation of Ukraine after the war. So from emergency needs to development of our cities, our local communities, because we think that we need to build Ukraine from the bottom, I mean, from the lowest level of uh, 
local governments, local city councils. We will share our experience on, on how we passed this war, I mean, how we defended our communities and what we do now and what we plan to do in future after uh, this war will end. And what has your experience been? The experience is really hard, you know, for people who were civilians and planned uh, development of their territories for the future, like sustainable development and green technologies, green uh, heating, green electricity. We started to be defenders of our city. We built fortifications, we built different, let's say, we helped our army to defend our city and our country. And then we moved our enemy back and it helped us uh, to create new divisions of army and uh, be more, you know, to be more strong and to regroup and to get more force to move forward and push Russians behind the Kherson. So you are in a stronghold at the moment. Are you now in a position to rebuild? Yes, uh, Mikolaev has uh, a really good experience in survival because our city was eight months without drinking water at all because Russians ruined our pipes that helped us to bring fresh water from Dnipro River uh, near Kherson to the city of Mikolaev. Before the war, we pumped 120,000 cubic meters per day to the city of Mikolaev. Then, after the ruin of the pump station and those pipes, we had eight months of lack of drinking water. So we made boreholes, we took water under the ground, and we shared it, we distributed it to people. Today, we resolved this problem with water. We are resolving problems with electricity, and we are building a new plan of renovation. We started with the general plan, master plan of the city, which will be the base of our renovation plan. And moreover, we don't want to just to rebuild those ruined objects ruined by the war, but we want to make it better. Instead, let's say, of two old schools to build one modern school and do some, you know, roads connected with those children who need education. So it will be like build back better rule that we plan to use on, on the renovation. So as soon as this war happens, we need to prepare all the documentations, all the plans, all the bureaucracy procedures to start a rebuild and renovate Ukraine after the end of the war. The scars of war are still being discovered in Mykolaiv, Russian torture chambers. What has the experience of warfare been like for the city? You know, uh, every time when you think that it's hard, it is hard for you to live or you have really big problems, start to think about those cities that, or about those people who have bigger problems who are now under shelling, everyday shelling, because Mikulayev, before the liberation of Kherson, was under everyday shelling. And let's say we had only 46 days without shellings. All other days we were bombarded by Russians, missiles, cluster bombs and everything. So today we are in a silent mode. We have time to get all those ruins out of the city, to renovate some buildings, houses, private houses, and to launch water, heating, and electricity. So we work on that, on survival, but we already think about development. For the cities that are still under attack, 
is the West doing enough? Is Germany doing enough? You know, sometimes uh, people ask me why our army goes so slow forward. But I usually say that we need to save as many people as we can because our Western partners can provide help us with uh, armory, with uh, weapon, with the tanks and everything, but no one will fight instead of us. So we need to save our lives, uh, lives of our soldiers, and for sure we need help of all the Western world because we are fighting now not with Russia. It's not a war with, between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between uh, Russian world and Western civilization. So you remember that the World War II, when everyone had silence when Hitler started to occupy different territories. And we see it grew to the World War II. So today, world incorporation stops this World War III, and Ukraine is on front line. Finally, there is a session on energy transformation in Ukraine. You spoke about pipelines being destroyed. In Mykolaiv, what is the situation with energy? To be honest, we experience problems with electricity, but they are less than in other parts of Ukraine because there is a nuclear station near us that provides us with electricity. But anyway, let's say we have like uh, uh, blackouts on two on four, two switch off, uh, four hours with electricity. And we kind of already familiar with the situation. Uh, but another problem that our enterprises don't work because of these problems. And this is the next challenge that we have is to launch all the productions and to get investments to make them bigger for people who will return to have workplaces. We don't want, I think Ukrainians, for sure make a citizens, we don't want to be those poor guys who will always ask for money. Please help us. Please. We want to be partners who wants to grow their production, who want to get not just, you know, grants, money for free, but the investments that we are ready to turn back and to help businesses, let's say Western businesses, to earn money in Ukraine. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, our highlights here from Monaco Radio this week. And for this week's Global Countdown, where I look at the top five songs in a different country every week, I head to the Maldives. That's an interesting one. For the first time ever on the Global Countdown, we're heading to the Maldives. Uh, you know, I actually came back from there recently, so I was a little bit inspired. Uh, Georgina, of course, it's a very small nation, but one thing that surprised me, and I think it reflects on the charts here as well, how multicultural it is. I mean, they have so many influences from not only Sri Lanka and India, India in particular, uh, but also a lot of African rhythms uh, in the charts. Well, I thought it was uh, fascinating. Although we, we must see more local artists in the top five. It's a shame that there isn't so much uh, of Dan quite there yet. Yeah, I suppose that there isn't a huge music-making industry there, is there? Absolutely. Uh, well, shall we start with number five? I think we're going to start it's a, in a very explosive way because this song was the soundtrack of the India blockbuster film Patan. Uh, it is by Vishal and Shekhar. It's called Jum Jo 
Patan. He mentions the film. This film is one of the top grossing films ever uh, in India and clearly is doing very well in the Maldives. Let's have a uh, listen for the song. You can't stand still. Oh, right? I'm really enjoying it. I'm dancing. Um, but I, I see what you mean about the Indian influence. And I just wanted to, to mention to you that JLF, which is the Jaipur uh, Lit Fest, uh, has an annual event now in uh, in the Maldives. Uh, they've got another one coming up, uh, I think, from the 12th of May. And it's 10 days of wonderful authors and events and everything in this fantastic location. And I mean, you can vouch for how wonderful it is there, can't you? I mean, it is wonderful. Of course, I had this cliche image of the Maldives, but it is what it is. The sea was splendid, the best I've ever seen. The people were so friendly. I came back with a lovely image from it. And I can see it's expanding. I know, I know there are a lot of problems with climate change, but I think tourism is a massive uh, source of income uh, for the nation as mm. well. Who's number four? Number four from the same film. But this song, I would say it's a bit sexier uh, as well, Georgina. There is a moment, uh, look at the lyrics, the moment I feel a wave of modesty, I throw it to the wind. So it's also from Patan. This is Vishawn Shekhar with Besharan Rangsong. about the modesty you know <laughs> it's a lovely track and, 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 and it feels quite more than something you would listen I don't know in Ibiza as well and even the video I mean it's quite, it's quite racy I think caused some controversy as well because there were people in bikinis and not quite speedos but short shorts as mm. well uh, I like that song very what much What do you wear on the beach? Bikinis? Short shorts? <laughs> short shorts or speedos Speedo. I, I'm, a, I'm a traditional man you know yeah, so. You're a traditional Brazilian Exactly sexy. Exactly <laughs> What's number three? A completely different mood from our number four song. Uh, of course, uh, Ramadan ended recently. So this is quite a, you know, a beautiful religious ballad uh, by his this singer, Maher Zayn. He's a Lebanese-Swedish. It's interesting, Georgina, I was reading more about him. He started as a kind of more of a kind of a pop star and kind of a little bit of R&B, hip-hop there. But I think he's becoming more and more uh, religious. And, and clearly, he does have a big market in the Maldives as well, with this song called Ramatung Liu Alamen, which means mercy to the world. <laughs> As you say, Fernanda, that's a, a religious song, and I know that since 2008, Islam has been the official religion of, of the Maldives. And I just wonder if we were talking about sort of wearing very little on the beach, if that is a problem, if there's any kind of uh, tension there. 
Probably there is, but I think, you know, I've got to be honest, I think a lot of uh, tourists, when they go there, they stay in the resorts, but that you almost live in a little bit of a parallel mm. world, world as well. But I think if you are in the cities like Mali, it's different. I don't think uh, bikinis and speedos would be uh, the accepting, uh, accepted kind of uh, clothes that you should wear. But I find it fascinating just looking at this top five, the different vibes, something mm. perhaps a bit more conservative, something from India that is conservative, but they are also enjoying it. Uh, I like that. And number two, I think you might be happy with this, Georgina, because... I mean, we've been. I've Does been, it channel Abba? Uh, well, not quite. <laughs> no, but it just talks about the rise and rise of Afropop and the Afrobeat. Uh, I have to say, especially from Nigeria. Uh, I mean, Rema. What a successful story. His song, Calm Down, was literally everywhere. Uh, in the Maldives, in India, in Europe, in South America. The song was already popular, but then he decided, he said, he needed a female vocal in the song as well. So he invited Selena Gomez for the track. So you can... I mean, the song was already big. Now it's, it's stratospherically big. Um, and it's so suave. Amazing beats as well. Let's have a listen. Rema and Selena Gomez with Calm Down. And my hips make you cry when I'm It was, I have to be honest, actually, when I was at the resort, they played this song quite a lot. Because, I don't know, it, it's something that calms your soul, but actually you can dance to as well. Mm. Uh, it's very special. Well done, uh, Rema as well, one of the biggest pop stars at the moment from Nigeria. And at number one... They love K-pop as well in the Maldives. I mean, I mean, who doesn't these days? But it's interesting that Jisoo, she's a member of Blackpink, one of the biggest K-pop groups ever. But it's interesting to see that they're, they're, some of them are going on their solo careers. That doesn't mean that Blackpink is over, but they're doing very well. Because sometimes it's a bit it's a bit of a, it's a difficult situation to leave a group and release a solo album. And with this uh, song, which is from the album Me, she became the best-selling uh, female artist of all time when it comes to sales. I mean, and, and the album's been released for less than a month. Uh, this is Jisoo with Flowers. So many different vibes in this top five, Absolutely. right? I mean, from Bollywood and even in to that Ramadan. One song. Yes, <laughs> I love um, that. Extraordinary. You had almost an Indian influence coming in there too, didn't you? And of course, most of K-pop is written by Swedish songwriters. It's extraordinary. It's They've extraordinary. really, really, really nailed it. We're back here with the curator. Time to look back at Saloni del Mobile in Milan, where the chairman of the board of USM told Monaco's Tyler Brulé about the significance of Swiss manufacturing to the pioneering furniture company's work and mission. Alex, this is year number three in Brera, and it's been interesting to also, you've really been sort of part of the, almost the re-evolution of Salone because it was a little small uh, three years ago. Last year, it was obviously at a different scale. Now it's at full speed. The world uh, is here, of course, 
in Milan. What's your impression so far when you think about business, the nationalities that are here, the conversations about the industry, and particularly for a business like USM, where maybe many people, of course, associate you with the workplace, many others see you in retail environments, and many others see you at home. How does it look for you? Well, of course, what is completely different is that our Asian friends are back again. You know, that was really last year, very few. And now, of course, even more massively than usual. Actually, we have tonight the Asian dinner where all the dealers that are here from Asia should all join together for the first time. And that is really something. And I think also the city is completely full of people, I guess. You also add the tourists to it that are back too, but it's a completely different site than at least two years ago. Mentioning Asia, I want to just pick up, I was in Seoul recently and uh, was visiting some of your partners in that city. And it's incredible to see how USM lives in department stores, shop in shops. It's a very, very different experience in Korea than it might be in, in other parts of the world. Do you see the USM brand in a way almost performing uh, across the world in very different ways, that there's an Asian approach to how people see your brand and also how you want to market yourself versus legacy market like Europe. And then of course, a market like the US, which in some ways is still emerging for you. Well, definitely Asia is emerging too. And I think the second speciality about Asia is that we have, I think the average customer is like, I mean, maybe 10 years in average younger there. Also, you know, we have these kind of Korea people, they, they present their furniture on Instagram or somewhere, and then it creates a rush. I think that's a really different to the markets here, I think. But also, um, as you mentioned, office, home, I think the share of uh, home uh, turnover is also much higher all over Asia, especially China and Korea. Let's, uh, let's talk about the workplace for a moment. Again, we also see the world moving at different speeds. You can go to many European cities, office spaces are, are reoccupied, people are back 80, 100 uh, percent. Other parts of the world, if we look across the, the Atlantic, increasingly people talk about a real crisis in the workplace and that you have whole buildings that are just not occupied. But what is your view, because this is still front and center for you when you think about the modern workplace in the world? First of all, I think it's maybe the, the proportion of people that work at home or in the office that varies from market to market. Even I think in, in France we see a big surge of uh, small to medium-sized project, office project again, much quicker than the other countries, for instance, in Europe. So maybe it's a, I, it could be the mentality that they just like to go more to the office or more used to go to the office than the... Anglo-Saxon and maybe even German-speaking people. It's different, I guess, in every country how fast people are coming back and how often per week and so And this triggers, of course, a lot of change in the office world. We've heard a lot of discussion about also that maybe companies like USM, some of your uh, competitors, your peers as well, see this period also as, as a time of growth, uh, better margins, because of the fact that also offices need to upgrade and that there needs to be more spend on better materials. Obviously, you have a sustainability story to tell as well because we're actually standing around a USM desk at the moment here in the Swiss Pavilion, and this lasts forever. So this combined the sustainability message, but also the fact that this is a premium offer 
for the office environment. Are you benefiting from that? Partly, I think, because this is a bit like a polarization, you know, because I think the, the ones that are really putting the emphasis on the office, they are ready to invest a bit more. Obviously, with USM, they can also use the old parts and reconfigure and do completely new concepts without having to really purchase a lot of new uh, material. But then also, I think, so some companies, they have a lot of focus on reconfiguring, and others are just more like in the wait-and-see mode for the time being. So it's a bit of black and white there, yeah. but... Of course, we more see the people that are really active in what could we offer more to the employee. For instance, these plans that we launched before the lockdown, they're very successful now because I think people want to give a bit, the management wants to give the people that come back to the office a bit more like, well, a home feeling or more green feeling or so. So I think that uh, these are all effects of this crisis, I think. I think I might know the answer to the question I'm about to ask, but at a time, you just mentioned polarization on one side when we think about environments and how, how the world is, is functioning. How does USM continue to manufacture in Switzerland at a time when, of course, there's inflation? And I mean, Switzerland's been quite isolated from inflation in many ways, but prices, especially material prices, continue to trend upward. How is it that uh, in Little Munsingen, of course, very important Munsingen as well from a, a design and manufacturing perspective. How are you able to endure and continue to manufacture in Switzerland? I think the material prices, that's a bit worldwide. I think the energy prices, that was really what was hurting us the most. I think they're a bit local to Europe because Europe has no own energy sources, so everything especially in Germany, but uh, Switzerland is very linked to Germany, it used to come from Russia and, well, the Middle East, uh, whereas, of course, for this, China or the U.S., they're a bit more independent of foreign imports of energy, and I think that was the most critical part. It also led to some inflation in Switzerland, but not as bad as in the other European countries, actually. And the knock-on then from a manufacturing point of view, because also the other side of this is we hear about the talent issues and the erosion, the evaporation of, of people to go and do jobs. How do you still keep this attractive, that people want to come into a factory in, of course, high-wage Switzerland to make things with their hands, even though, of course, you're, of course, very automated in many ways at the same time? I remember when I was in gymnasium, high school, you know, I sometimes went to work in the factory and what you had to do is just press a button with two fingers or so and, and the machine was working. But now I think uh, with these uh, installations we have, we actually need very skilled people in the factory. And it's at the same time also the job got more interesting, obviously. But it's true, it's not so easy to find skilled labor, well, everywhere in the world, also in Switzerland. Even though we have this uh, dual system in Switzerland where not everybody has to go to university to be successful. Just finally, before, before we go, uh, looking ahead, of course, you've had a premiere here with ZigZag. It's quite hard to, to miss when you go down Garibaldi here. This notion of... On one side, you, you bring out novelties. On the, on the flip side, though, people like to come back to the brand. And I know that you're the one who always says as well that you've got to stick with your color codes because then it allows you to replace. 
and, and obviously grow your collection uh, if you're one of those people who has a collection of USM. But do you see that that sort of point of innovation design becomes a more critical part of what you do in an increasingly noisy, Instagram-friendly world? Yeah, that's very part of it. Okay, here it's a very limited series. There are 50 pieces of each that we're actually selling. So I'm not very worried they're going to sell quite quickly. Maybe it might be a bit against our overall philosophy where you can add on to each piece. But as I say, we cannot be just more uh, profit than the profit himself. So sometimes we do things like this, and especially in a noisy design week in Milano, as you mentioned, sometimes you have to stick out a bit maybe with a new idea, a different idea. But we have also other uh, long-term evolution uh, projects, especially for the hollow system now, that we are looking at to make it even more flexible or even maybe also a bit more colorful in a way. Or And uh, these we will release in the next few years, but these are then going to things that are going to stay, not in this kind of limited edition version as we do now. We'll look forward to that. Uh, Alex Scherer, thank you very much. And finally, for food neighborhoods, we take Sally Howard to Tbilisi's old town, the heart of the ancient Georgian capital. She tries a selection of sharing dishes with heavy Persian, Mongol and Russian influences. And of course, a healthy dollop of sour cream. With its switchback alleys, ancient sulfur hammams and myriad ethnic quarters, from the small Armenian district where the air is scented of kovorats or Armenian barbecue to the Jewish quarter at the feet of Tbilisi's vast central synagogue. Georgia's location at the crossroads of Europe, Asia and the Middle East is inscribed into Dzveli Tbilisi or the streets of old Tbilisi. This fortune of geography also animates Tbilisi's food scene. Since the Soviet days, the orchard of the Caucasus has been a vast producer of grains, wine grapes and table fruits such as peaches and pomegranates. And Georgia's national cuisine bears edible witness to waves of Persian, Mongol and Red Army invasion. I head to Shaviloma restaurant for lunch, which is tucked away on an old Tbilisi back street. Named for a painting by 19th century artist Nicol Pirismani, who captured folk scenes of Georgian peasants tending fields and drinking cups of wine, it serves the classics of Georgian cuisine on vast sharing plates called gobi. At Shaviloma, a smiling waiter tells me that the word gobi gave the Georgian language its word for friendship, megobari, a country and a community of happy platter sharers. Today, sitting at a table in the restaurant's courtyard, beneath a pomegranate tree, I'm one of them. I sample blockbuster Georgian dishes such as shukmaruli, or village chicken in garlic and sour cream sauce, gebjalia, which is brine cheese with mint and tarragon, and badrizan nigzvit, which are grilled aubergine rolls with hazelnut sauce, all lubricated by fruity Georgian clay pot wine. Back in the spring sunshine, I walk the bustling length of Chardeni Street, an old Tbilisi thoroughfare since the Middle Ages, 
where Islamic style ornamented balconies shade the canopies of restaurants and bars. With hookah pipe and Turkish coffee bars, cheap by jowl with restaurants that pair meat dishes with Georgian wine, Chardeni reflects the competing appetites of the new Tbilisi tourists. There are Europeans drawn by Georgia's new wine boom, but there are also Saudis and other Middle Easterners who come here to party without the booze. Before the pandemic, Tbilisi was emerging as a new Berlin for travelling foodies. Sadly, one landmark, Skola, or school cafe, where wine was served in tumblers on cork coasters and menus were made of street maps, was a victim of the pandemic. Gunda, a blonde wood panelled bakery where staff wear apron dresses that wouldn't look out of place in a Stockholm cafe, carries the hipster torch. Gunda is a tasting bakery, offering regional takes on kachapuri, the cheesy and doughy national Georgian comfort dish. And here it comes in many incarnations. It's flat and stuffed with cheese and potato as you'll find it in the south. It's puffed and enlivened with spring onion as it's served in villages in the north of Georgia. It's all rib-cladding fare, perhaps the world's most noble take on cheese on toast. And it's washed down with Gunda's homemade tarragon soda. This is food to fuel a population fighting off Red Army invaders, or many hungry hipsters. Kachapuri is part of our national soul, my young Georgian companion notes, perhaps more poetically, through chews. I'll raise a tarragon soda to that, I say, and to the many and tasty offerings of Old Tbilisi. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>